On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. Hello, and welcome to the Brevity Code podcast. Uh, I am, my name is Ryan Hauser. I'm your host today. And I've got with me in studio Christian Strike, a serial entrepreneur, uh, mostly focused in the field of art, media, technology, uh, total serial entrepreneur. We're going to dive into all of his uh, ventures uh, throughout our podcast today. Um, for me, it's an honor. I've been a huge fan of, of his work, uh, mostly centered around uh, this amazing thing called The Beautiful Losers, which we will dive into into some detail. Uh, he's got a new uh, venture called Distill. Um, he's had another few companies in between those things. So we're going to dive into all that. Um, so Christian has also, he's he's lectured, he's consulted on culture, the arts, uh, the United States, Europe, South America. Um, he's got a ton of wisdom. Uh, I've done a TED Talk. I'm happy to have him on the show today. Uh, diving right in. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Yeah, this is going to be cool. I'm, I'm super excited. Um, well, we always have good conversations. We, I know we do. <laughs> I felt like we just had some and we weren't even right. rolling yet. <laughs> um, so first, uh, we've known each other for a bit um, and I feel like have had similar but very distinctively different paths too, like sort of both drawn to creatives um, and and done some pretty interesting things along the way to to move, uh, you know, art and fashion movements. Um, and I'm not trying to be braggadocious there. I'm just saying. You've accomplished the, a lot too. <laughs> I'm not going. <laughs> uh, let's just, let's, let's. Indirectly, that's why I'm here. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's omit that. Um, so your last name Strike, like, I feel like that's one of those, like when you go Howard Stern and you are like those names that have this word that evokes the the man behind the name is it, is that your real name is that some crazy <laughs> stage name that you came up with because you're a great marketer like where does it come from it is my real name um and it, i've only i grew up in ohio and so uh i never got asked that for decades you know ever never have, am i ever asked that in ohio it's only in la that i'm asked if that's my like, real yeah, name. yeah yeah that makes total sense <laughs> you know? well okay but is there is is there sort of like some native american indian roots to it or there's actually a good story um it's funny you ask that it's a it's a good story so my um i i it, there is it has nothing to do with uh, native american although my great grandmother on my mom's side was cherokee but um it actually comes from my dad's side who whose father my grandfather came over with his uh, brother around the turn of the century uh, the last century, obviously, um, from Greece. And so they worked in a, um, they, I don't know, they were under 10. I think they were seven or eight-ish when they came over, um, spoke no English. And uh, they went to go work for a tannery in New York City. And back then there were no child labor laws. It was like right. Oliver Twist, you know. Um, it, was just right. a, it was just a completely awful sort of working environment and conditions. And Early mortality style. I can, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I assume so. And um, so they organized a, 
you know, these these were children um, essentially, but they uh, several years after. Uh, going to work there um, as preteens or early teens, they organized a workers' union, and so they got nicknamed the Strike Boys. And so as they, as they started getting asked their names over the years, they just started saying "Strike," and that was it. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good. awesome. Yeah, it's good. Um, so, okay, so you mentioned Ohio roots. There grew up up to what age? I grew up my whole life. I was born in outside, you know, in a suburb of Cincinnati, and um, uh, went. Went through high school there, and then I went to college on the East Coast. Which is interesting because a lot of what I feel you're, you've not only been influenced by and sort of been a catalyst of the movement is this sort of underground skate, more, um, I don't want to call it a hardcore culture, but um, a scene nonetheless that's mm-hmm. a bit in the underground um and I think like I'm, you know, you think of the East and West Coast and you go like, okay, yeah, clearly Orange County, LA, San Francisco, you know, New yeah. York City has those gritty type scenes where kids are really pushing those movements. And I don't want to undercut or discount huh? Ohio, but I don't, when I think of skate movements and, and influence, I don't necessarily go, that's not where my first thought is. So how did you get, how do you, or was there a scene? Maybe. Like yeah. Um, well, I was. I, I would say I was more interested and involved in um, sort of underground or independent music scenes than I was in, in skateboarding. Uh, I think skateboarding for me was a part of my life, but it wasn't my life. And I think when I was growing up, um, either you know identified and were a skateboarder, and that was sort of your whole persona in in many ways. Um, and that was never me. I was more of a uh, jack of all trades. I kind of had sort of, I, I was kind of a polymath. I had interests that were broader than just one thing. And, um, so I did lots of stuff and, um, you know, having an interest in skateboarding was part of that, but, um, so were many other things. And I'd say music probably played a bigger role, um, in my formation, um, in my interest in culture. So when you say music, like, was that, were you like into the hardcore punk scene? Was that like indie rock or was it a combination of both or, or was it metal? Like, where were you there? I, it's funny. You mentioned all of them. Uh, I, yeah. like, I liked it all. I, I think that um, probably punk and culture and, and music and the music, but the culture in general is probably my, my largest or deepest touchstone. I think that my POV probably starts there and kind of emanates out. But I was interested in everything from metal to jazz to mm-hmm. hip hop, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was just, I just grew up in a in a pretty like an upper middle class suburb outside of Cincinnati, um, so that was sort of the again my sort of the prism with which I looked looked at things. Right. So you you go to college, you're a history major, mm-hmm. and then you you get out and you start a zine. Did it happen in that order, or was this something that was happening during college as a creative outlet, or and, and what was the zine? Yeah, it was it, it was called Strength, and oops, sorry, and uh, um, it evolved into a full on color glossy sort of magazine. Um, I it it came from a hardcore. The name came from a hardcore lyric. I don't recall what, um, but I was just really into music, and I was kind of a music nerd, and. Um, uh, uh, there was a punk band called Chain of Strength. Was it that? It wasn't. Uh, not no, that no, and I'm not edge band. No, yeah. no. Um, but I, I, um, I just in, I was still in school, and uh, I would just go and interview bands or artists that I was interested in, and then 
Um, one of the big breakthroughs was my, my cousin lived in the village um, in New York City at the time, and she was friendly with a photographer who shot a lot of musicians for a lot of music magazines. And he had a pretty um, styled uh, way of sh- shooting. Uh, you know, he used sort of these bright co- colors that contrast. Anyway, he, he had a really interesting style of shooting photography, particularly portrait photography. And um, he was shooting Method Man. And uh, um, uh, that was sort of my first kind of big. So I got to go interview Method Man. That's right. Um, and he was he did this shoot for me actually for the zine, and it was he just produced these wonderful photographs that ended was up being was it the, just Method Man or was it was he part of Wu Tang at that point? Was he even formed? Oh yeah, Wu Tang was first. Wu Tang was I think their first album came out in '92. This would have been in '94. So this was he was doing the promotion and and he was actually shooting the video for the. Um, I think the song was called All I Need with Mary J. Blige. Right, and yeah. It was, it was at the video shoot for that. And um, uh, that's how I initially met the Wu-Tang Clan. And I later on had a skateboard company with those guys. Dude. I, I don't, I don't know, know if we ever talked no, about that. No, we have not. Oh, my God. I don't know if we're going to have time to dive into the Wu-Tang Clan today. but I There wasn't much to tell. Well, it was, <laughs> it's it, awesome. We, we had a, we, it was called Wu-Tang Hard Good Company, and it lasted about two years. Mm-hmm. And the short story, this is, it's, it's an interesting one, but um, – was it, we started it right around the time in uh, a few years later. So in 97, right around the time their second album was coming out. So they were the biggest thing going. Yeah. And what, um, what we did, and this has actually some brand uh, things, I, lessons I learned in the action sports um, industry in the years prior. Uh, I kind of took a page and applied it toward this business. But um, we couldn't make those boards fast enough. We were using every wood shop, and we were out – we were producing, we were putting in purchase orders for more boards than their own house brands, right? So like, you know, Schmidt Sticks was making boards for all the giant distribution brands like Element. Yeah, being sure. The we were putting, we, we, Girl and Chocolate used them too. We yeah. were outgrowing their capacity. So we had to start using Watson and we had to start using anyone we could find to make boards. <laughs> oh man. I, so did each member have their own deck? So you got what, 11? Yeah, there were, God, it kind of fluctuates. It depends who you include. If you include Capadonna, uh, we never did a board for Capadonna, but we did boards for everybody else. And so, but one of the things that was important to me, and you, this kind of touches on everything we do, you, your history too, in that um, I just didn't want to like make a Wu-Tang. I wanted it to yeah. be authentic. Right. And I wanted it to be sort of by skaters for skaters kind of a thing. Cause all the people that worked with me at the company were, you know, my employees were all skateboarders and, we all were pretty steeped in that culture. So we wanted it to be authentic and not cheesy. And what I did was um, I had this idea about um, approaching um, – so I approached a bunch of pros I knew, you know, like Clyde Singleton and Jamal Williams and some of the other, um, you know, black skaters of the time that I knew or were friendly with. And they were all down to do – because what I the, the concept was I wanted to do a, like a dual pro model, like a collab. So it would be Jamal Williams and the genius. Yeah. On a board together. Right. And then uh, Clyde's, who's Clyde with? I can't remember who, maybe Riza or I, I can't remember, yeah. recall, but each each band member was paired essentially with like uh, a spirit, you know, like a little brother skater. And, and um, but these, these skaters like Clyde and Jamal, they had other sponsors. And so what I did was, um, I think Jamal was riding for, um, God, American Dream at the time. It does, whoever they were riding for, I would go to the. I went to the skateboard company, and I knew all the folks at those companies. And I said, "Hey, we'll give you a royalty on these boards too, and we'll put your logo on it." So it was a co-branded board. And who wouldn't want to be teamed up 
Totally. By the biggest hip hop yeah. act happening in the underground with the most cred. Totally. Who's going to say no? No one did. I mean, no one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really was a great idea. I got to say, I hate to pout myself on the back, but it, it, the timing was perfect. And um, so you'd have this Jamal Williams genius board, and it would be, you know, Wu Tang Hard Gun, Good Company and American Dream. And it was this like Dude. total collab board and people freaked. They okay. But so now this is interesting too, because, you know, this isn't the world of online in 1997. No. So you're selling shops. Yeah. So, and I got to imagine. Phone sales, basically. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm, I've got this. Who's, I mean, no one's going to say no either from the skate shop perspective either, but. So is it was it mostly, was that rippling through the East Coast or was there? It was everywhere. It was we, everywhere. We were selling boards worldwide. We, we, Worldwide. we literally could not sell enough of those things. It was, it was, it, would, Did, it went like wildfire. And the reason, the reason it hit, we, I think we would have sold a ton of boards even had we not done the collaboration angle with like the yeah. legitimate skater from the legitimate skateboard company. But um, that again gave it credibility and authenticity that every bo- every shop could, we could not sell enough of them. So, you know, there, there's something to be said for, you know, collabs that are limited edition to really kind of create that cachet and that demand. But in this case, it sounds like, I mean, there was such a fever pitch because it's Wu-Tang paired with the the pro at the time. Why not sell some decks, right? It wasn't even... Yeah, no. And and also they, the, the artwork was great. Um, so one of my team members was a guy named Joe Castrucci, who is a really talented artist. And... Um, He's a talented guy in general, but um, he went on to form Habitat Skateboards, which became, you know, a, one of the top brands in skateboarding for many, many years, and I think still is. So, um, uh, you know, Joe was a talented guy. And, and so not only was the idea and the people involved, were, was that all on point? We had the boards look good. You know, the product itself was appealing. So right. It's so funny how it, it kind of comes to full circle with, distill right i mean totally i don't want to jump ahead but that's one of the sort of pillars of what you're doing absolutely it's a key component to what we do at distill um and it's something that you know i've been doing for over 20 years yeah i mean literally i mean uh these are there it's nothing new it's just it's kind of it's making cool stuff and that was what I did going back to how the magazine business started. It was like, I just wanted to make something cool, something that I thought I was interested in. So let's dive into that for a second. So you're, yeah. you're, you're kind of going, you're doing the school thing, you're a history major. You mm-hmm. have this creative outlet that turns out to be this great publication that's mm-hmm. turns you into all this connective tissue within the industries in which you had interest, music and skateboarding and lifestyle culture music. Yeah. Um, but how, like, how do you get started doing that? I feel like, a lot of us have, you know, ideas or passions or inspirations, but then they're shelved because we've got this life to live and I've got a midterm coming up. And sure. So what makes you get off the couch and instead of, you know, screwing around with your buddies, yeah. like I'm going to start a zine, I'm going to work my ass off and I'm going to study like that's, that's, you know, how's that go? Well, um, I, I had a lot of disadvantages and I had some advantages. The disadvantages were I, um, you know, it wasn't like I was from or lived here, in, you know, in Southern California where the action sports industry is. I didn't grow up knowing people in the industry. I didn't, you know, uh, I wasn't a participant. I was essentially like a, an audience member, right, in the middle of the country. 
um, or at that time on going to school on the East Coast. I just I was not connected to the industry at all. Um, so I had to barge my way into it and not just action sports, but I mean music, just the whole business in general. I, I was just a kid. So, um, w- well, the genesis is I studied abroad the spring of my junior year. I, st- I, went, to, um, I, I uh, went to school in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and when I kind of came back, um, I was over school. Uh, not in the sense I, I loved learning. I mean, I, I was drawn to academia. I thought I was actually going to be a, like I wanted to be a professor. That was sort of what I thought I was going to do is, is work in academia. But um, I. There's time for that. Yeah, right. I guess there is. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I was just over school and in the sense that like, I went to a small liberal arts school and it was just a small place. It was a great place. Um, and so uh, my senior year, when I went back for my senior year, I actually lived um, rather than lived on camp, living on campus or something like that, I just rented a small one bedroom apartment and sort of started doing my own thing. And that's when I really started diving into like, you know, this interviewing. It, it really started with interviewing, being a fanboy at shows. And I would go and interview these musicians, whether it be Fugazi or Method, later on Method Man. And the way the magazine started, I was, I was my senior year. I was thinking, what the hell am I going to do when I got out of school? Um, you know, I had friends that went into normal jobs, great jobs, investment banking, whatever. And it just, it wasn't for me. Um, and not, so I, I just knew that I had to do something I was passionate about doing. Um, I, I thought I could compete and function at a high level if I was passionate about something, but if I'm not passionate about something, I can't deal with it. I, I, yeah, I yeah. blow my brains out or something. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, uh. I, I thought, well, maybe I can turn this into, let me explore turning this into a real business. So what I did was I had a, I made friends with somebody who worked at Kinko's and I, I took essentially all this content that I had developed and I made, I, I taught myself um, like Illustrator and Photoshop at the time and whatever the layout program, I think it was called Quark at the time. Um, uh, it was before whatever Adobe's program is. And so I just kind of taught myself the basics of that stuff and designed um, in effect, a magazine, and I and I went to Kinko's, and this guy would go late at night, and I made um, this sort of mock issue, first issue of this of all this content I accumulated, and I also put in mock ads from all the brands I liked, skateboard brands, music labels, whatever, and I made um, dozens of color copies of this thing, literally just on two sided sheets of paper, and I would I sent it out to um, with a cover letter to all these record labels and brands and also distribute magazine distributors and chains like tower records and Barnes and Noble. I would call, I would literally cold call tower records corporate office and find out like, who's your buyer, you know, right. and, uh, or Barnes and Noble or the, all the, you know, I would, could I, you actually get someone on the phone? I did. I, yeah, it, it I mean, was, you know, I plugged away at this for a long time, you know, but all I had was time. I was in college other than class. I didn't have too many, too many, um, commitments. So um, I essentially shoehorned enough orders from these distributors and these retail chains. And then I would, and once I got some orders for this magazine, I um, would then go back to- Yeah, you just leverage it. Yeah. Yeah, look what I got. Yeah. Yeah. Then I would go back to the average, like the record labels and the brands and say, hey, I've got orders for, you know, 15,000 copies of this at these outlets. Right. These guys are in, you want to, you want to be a part of this. Yeah. Totally. And Genius. S- and so that's how. Fake it till you make it. 
That's exactly right. <laughs> and and uh, but it was real. I mean, we, we you know we had real distribution and and um, yeah. And then we 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 made a ton, an absolute ton of mistakes, but we learned a lot and we were nimble and savvy and we kind of figured it out. Right. And then so then this business goes on to grow, becomes legit, becomes credible, gives you that connective tissue within those various industries we've mentioned, and you sell it. Is I that did. so? I did. And then you you're retained after the sale. Yeah, I had a contract stick around for a year, um, and included sort of an earnout component, mm. right? Based on how'd that go? Per, well, um, oh, yeah, it went great. We hit <laughs> Good for we, you. We hit <laughs> I feel like uh, it doesn't always. No, it doesn't. We hit um, uh, we hit all of our. I knew that if we were, so Jeez. there were it was like a quarterly sort of thing. We ran out a year, and it was broken down into quarters. And we had numbers we had to hit, and I knew that if the numbers were even close to the to the benchmark, they there would be some. So I wanted to blow away those benchmarks. So you know we did, and I um, and I, I I earned my earnout. So it's fantastic. <laughs> so now, like, are you? So you're what, like, early twenties, right, or mid twenties? I was twenty, about twenty seven. Now, are you thinking like, I am such a baller? I've got, I'm like, I'm rolling, I'm living the dream. Like, what, what's it? What's your status? Like, do you go buying a house? Do you got what? How are you rolling this? Or yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess on some level, I was, I was psyched on. I mean, the financial opportunity was significant, particularly for somebody of that age, for uh, sure. Um. It wasn't game over money, you know. It wasn't the. It wasn't like okay, I'm done and I can just roll around and get a new Ferrari. No, but at 27, you're thinking like, okay, dude, I just (laughs) had this company, sold it, made made probably more money than I ever. Maybe there wasn't even an an exit expectation, and so then there's this number, and you're like, this is awesome. They're gonna pay you. You hit your earnout, so it's just bonus upon bonus upon bonus and, and at 27 like what are your expenses so yeah pretty low <laughs> i didn't yeah. have much i mean at, at the time I, I lived in a uh an apartment and um with my girlfriend who then became my wife and just there wasn't much there wasn't much uh uh you know overhead no wow. um and it was a good time i mean the financial opportunity was great but to be totally honest with you um, as appealing as the financial opportunity it was also the opportunity to just expand you know, take on new challenges, expand my skill set, learn. Um, the guys that I sold it to were young. Uh, they were in their early to mid thirties. The the pump the company had just gone public with within you know within two years of me of me selling my business. Um, they had just bought CCS, which is the big skateboarding mail order, which even at that time was a hundred million dollar business. And um, and they wanted me to, and I was going to be a top ten guy at a publicly traded company at age twenty seven, and so. That was as appealing, you know, honestly, as anything. And what they wanted me to do was run their what they called their boys' business units, which included CCS. And so um, uh, I ran all the sales and marketing and programming and content and everything for those businesses, the magazine, CCS. And then while I was there, we bought a business called Dan's Comp, which was similar to CCS in that they were the 800-pound gorilla of BMX mail order. And so we bought Dan's Comp, which I don't know at the time was maybe a thirty or sixty million dollar company somewhere in there. Um, so significant businesses, and they were fun. I mean, we did a we did a lot of fun stuff. And the other thing that was interesting about Alloy, which is the name of the company I sold it to, is they were very digital first, even at that time. Um, in two thousand one, about half of our merchandise sales were online. That's insane. It yeah. is. 
It is. That's a staggering number for that year. It is. Yeah. And so I learned a ton about, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were just we were just very digital first. We were very progressive when it came to technology. And so we utilized our email campaigns, our websites, and we were leveraging sort of our digital assets as well as our print assets pretty in a pretty smart way. I mean, I think about my business back then. I feel like we were building our website. Yeah. Forget e-com sales. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking like maybe 99. Yeah. Starting to kind of really think about the website as an important component to the business. Yeah. And that so that is really telling of how far in front and 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 further from a brand perspective. You know, we were trying, we were in the weeds and the retailers were in the weeds trying to figure out, okay, what is this online platform? And mm-hmm. like, you can't, I remember, I literally remember like, you'd have discussions with retailers, like you can't sell online and sell my store too. That right. doesn't work. Yeah, like, right. so think about how far that conversation has gone. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's nuts. I mean, the business, it was, it was, you know, at that time it was sort of the first internet revolution, right? I mean, that, that you know, I talk, we're jumping a little ahead here or this comment jumps a little bit ahead to distill what I'm doing now, but um, I feel like now we're in the the second internet revolution, the mobile revolution, right? The, but the first internet, it was like, it, it was like uh, everyone knew they had to have a website, but they didn't know what the hell to do with it. Right. And they didn't know how to have it impact their business. And one of the things that we did, um, what Alloy did, and they were really smart about was we had all these assets, right? We, and they had a whole bunch of, they also owned a whole bunch of girls' assets, media properties, uh, mail order properties. So we had all these sort of sales and marketing assets, these publications, these all these properties that um, had significant, um, you know, teen and 20-something um, audience audiences and customers. And we were leveraging, we were doing, so we'd go to like a DC Shoes and, and they could buy a, essentially a package from us that would sort of put them across platform, across all the platforms, yeah. all the different dra- demographics they wanted. So we were doing really complex, <sighs> yeah. interesting print and multi-channel digital and print traditional kind of marketing packages for these brands that also involved content, all the things that you're sort of seeing today. Content management. Like, so, so yeah. you guys were disseminating that information and, and, essentially becoming an agency of sorts for them. Right. I mean, in a sense. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, back then we called it advertorial, which was right. Ad- yeah. Advertising and editorial. It's now it's, you know, um, you know, brands paying influencers to post stuff on their Instagram. I mean, it's really no different. It's the same thing. It's just in a different medium and a different channel, but conceptually it's, it's really the same, you know, that's crazy. And we're and, in a, and we're doing we're offering essentially very similar services with the still just in the mobile space. Yeah. You know, so I know we're jumping. I know we're going to yeah. we're going to get, get there. there. Yeah. We're gonna yeah. get, so um let's you know, let's set the stage. So mid 90s um you know, again we kind of came up and that's what I said earlier when we started the show is similar but but equal um scenes. I mean there's guys like you there was, uh, I remember, I remember going to trade shows in the mid nineties, um, with my brand, Paul Frank, and you'd see like Dove Charney from mm-hmm. American Apparel, like running around with a hot girl and a, mm-hmm. and a clipboard, <laughs> like trying to convince brands that they needed to buy his blank, yeah. you know, instead of buying the, you know, the Anvil boxy blanks that, you know, were kind of starchy and well, those had their place too. Right. But, you know, he was trying to do something different. Were to, his blanks better? I mean, you that's your business. Well, I don't. Well, I think, again, I think um, 
you got to look at each generation's subculture and the movement. Yeah. So like, I feel like there was some brands that preferred that thick, 100% cotton, boxy, yeah. high neck thing. That yeah. wasn't my deal at all. Yeah. Um, and then there was, you know, Dove with American Apparel doing like fitted, great fitting, uh, you know, blanks that just kind of came out and blew everyone away. Yeah. And then the whole American made story that, that went along sure. with that was a feel good. And yeah. he just was a very charismatic and interesting character. Am I imagining this or in, in the outline you sent over, did, did you mention Vice too? That- so, yeah. So he had- Because I have an interesting story about Vice. Oh, I mean, yeah. It, but- so you'd have like, you know, Shane and Sarouche yep. from Vice- Coming by my yep. Paul Frank booth, and they're like, "Hey, we got this magazine called Vice, and it's free, and yep. you want to be an advertiser." And you know, it was super raw, yep. and like, you know, you'd flip through the pages, and there'd be like kids strung out on drugs and like crack dens. And I have this somewhat wholesome brand, right. like you know, selling <laughs> Julius the Monkey T-shirts and all the things we were doing. But but culturally, we got it, and we were a good fit, and and understood the relevance of how how much they were really pushing. Yeah. The, the envelope uh, in terms of the the coverage. Yeah. I mean, and you look at him now, and I, I just laugh. I mean, I watch Shane do the intros on Vice, and I just go, dude, it's yeah. so rad to see those guys and yeah. what they're doing. And, and they've stuck true to their vision. Sure. I don't think people – I think people just think like, oh, Vice was this thing that, you know, came up in the last few years. No, no. these guys have been at it for – A long time. A long time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to go rewind a little bit. Um, back then when things were still printed, um, you know, if you're, if you, I'm talking mid to late nineties, um, uh, one of my, um, favorite magazines at the time was, was big brother, the skateboarding magazine. And they got bought by Larry, you know, Rocco. Um, uh, he, I, I was really influenced business wise by Rocco, right? He kind of, the way, what he did in the skateboard industry was very innovative and just now we use the term disruptive, right? He really disrupted. Uh, the entire skateboard industry um, and turned it into a much more skater first skater driven uh, uh, businesses. Right. I mean, every, everything changed after that. Um, And then they figured, Hey, you know, these other magazines aren't aren't running the ads we want to run because they're too edgy or controversial. So I'm just going to do my own magazine. Um, And he had the distribution, right. So we just put it in shops. So um, that was, that was kind of the, a kernel of, I took a page from that, um, and, and 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 I'll move on to Vice. And coincidentally, when um, Big Brother, prior to Big Brother getting bought by Larry Flint's publishing company, they approached me, and they were um, so I got to go. And Larry Flint, ironically, is or coincidentally, is uh, from the Cincinnati area. <laughs> and so uh, fantastic. So I remember this is the you know mid night mid to late nineties. I. I uh, flew out here to LA and um, went to Larry Flint's office and saw the all the gold plated furniture and crazy stuff in his office. It it turned out that they were just doing due diligence on competitors and wanted to see sort of. I think they were just using me as 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 a way to kind of leverage really against their to get a better deal from Rocco to acquire Big Brother. Honestly, but um, and then I also got uh, sniffed around by. Um, Surfer publication. I forget the name of the company. They had like Surfer and Skateboarder and a few other things. It wasn't Transworld. No, it wasn't Transworld. Whatever their competitor was okay. at the time. Whatever the you know name of the conglomerate that. Yeah, owned. yeah, yeah. And that was part of that. That was why I ended up selling. Honestly, when I got approached by Alloy, I looked at the landscape, and I just thought, do I? All right, all all these 
other action sports magazines are in effect, right? Are more life kind of guys lifestyle magazines. They're all owned by these big publishers. And so when Alloy came around, um, again, it was a no brainer for me because not only like I mentioned the financial opportunity was good, um, the sort of the opportunity to kind of learn and get exposed to new challenges and those sorts of things was equally compelling. But also like I saw the writing on the wall. I was like, do I really want to like hack it out against these um, much better resource publications that are backed by these big international publishing companies? And I just, I just figured this is a good time. Um, and I, and I, I knew digital was going to disrupt the print space also. Now vice getting to vice real quick. Um, I, I was aware of Vice from the very, very beginning. I, I probably have the first issue somewhere around, but they, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, they came out of Montreal. And um, uh, they contacted me because I was one of the few sort of guys, cult, culture-ish, kind of cool, doing interesting stuff. And, you know, there weren't many of us. And they, um, uh, Sarouche and Shane reached out, I forget which one emailed me, I want to say it was Sarush, and just had general questions about distribution, like how do you get newsstand distribution, how do you get, uh, kind of like basic one-on-one questions, and I helped them, you know, answer the questions the best I could, and um, and remain supportive, and it was, they took part of what I did, part of our business model was to supply the magazines for free into all the skate shops, and snowboard shops, and surf shops, that's all what we did. What a brilliant, but like, yeah, charge the brands for the yeah. advertising. There's your revenue. Yeah. And then get the message out. Completely. A lot of eyeballs. There's no resistance on, oh, I can't, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna buy magazines, let them sit in my shop. Just give them out. Yeah. So we said, we said to the shops, hey, sell them if you can sell them. We would send them five or ten copies each or whatever. We'd say, um, sell them if you can sell them. If not, when the next issue comes away, give them away. Like yeah. do whatever. I mean, we didn't care. We just wanted people looking at them. And um, and Vice took that model and really ran with it. Um, and good for them. I mean, uh, and I think they hit a nerve as well. Like you said, pretty raw stuff, but initially vice was just sort of like almost like a non skateboarding version of big brother. It was just kind of like hijinks and shenanigans and just kind of like dumb shit. Basically it was funny, um, and had some interest, but they really hit a nerve as they matured, they really hit a nerve. And I think, you know, credit to, to, to Shane and Sarush and the rest of that crew, they really saw, um, frankly, some daylight, an opportunity, right? A market gap in terms of content being produced. And they said, hey, there's all these big mainstream, you know, news outlets, but nobody's really delivering pretty raw. Right. It's, it's the 60 minutes of our generation. It's, it's, yeah. they're, they're covering real stories that people want. And 60 minutes is still great, but sort of in a geriatric kind of sense. I, I mean, love 60 minutes personally. No, I know, but it, but yeah, you're right. You know, they're still doing that hard hitting, hardcore, mm-hmm. crazy embedded stuff. And yep. I think that that's, you know, I mean, I'm stating the obvious here. That is their, that's why they've been so successful. It's, 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 they've really gone under the layers of what most people would be willing to do in order to get news. Absolutely. And, yeah. and again, yeah. And, and all the way back to when they had print. So they, they've really been, a case study for, you know, staying on a path. Absolutely. And they, and they figured their stuff out, right? I mean, they, they, they've evolved and they, I wouldn't call it a pivot, but you could call it a pivot um, to use tech speak, but I mean, they, they really have, you know, sort of evolved into a place where they found, you know, a deep, deep market fit and, and kudos to them. They've, they've done a great job. Right. So, so there's all those crazy things happening, right? So you've got that whole, you got, 
the whole apparel industry scene, you've got Dove running around, you've got Shane and Sarush doing their thing. So you got apparel, you got, you know, media. Then you go outside of the booths at ASR and you've got skate exhibits and guys doing, you know, half pipe. And I feel like that was really kind of the, the height of, well, I don't know if it wasn't the height of skateboarding, but it was certainly relevant for me because I was of that generation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a really interesting you know, those guys like Ed Templeton and, and those guys, I actually went to high school with that, although I don't know if he remembers me or anything, mm-hmm. but becomes part of uh, what we're going to talk about next mm-hmm. is Beautiful Losers. Um, but I, I just feel like all that stuff, that groundswell of stuff, all fed into what I think you so brilliantly had crystallized. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that for a second. So you, why don't I just hand over the mic to you and talk about what what Beautiful Losers was, what the vision was, and then I've got a million questions. Yeah, no problem. Uh, well, the canned sort of response to what Beautiful Beautiful Losers was is it was essentially a large-scale museum exhibition that surveyed several decades of culture and the artists that came from it. Um, and so the, the artists... There were about four, roughly about 40 artists in the show, um, and uh, they were kind of camped into or put into two different buckets. One was sort of a generation that came of age in the 70s um, that then influenced our generation that came of age in sort of the late 80s to mid through mid, mid 90s, right? Um, and, you know, our generation was sort of, it was the, is the first internet generation. I mean, I remember I, speaking of, I was studying abroad in Australia when I first heard the term email. You know, I was passing a, co- a, a student, another American exchange student, um, leaving the computer lab. Right. And she, I was like, hey, Jill, what's up? She goes, I, I'll never forget this. She goes, uh, oh, not much. I was just emailing my parents and my jaw dropped like I was unfrozen caveman lawyer from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I had no idea. What? I had the most confused. I was like yeah. uh, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson and Zoolander. Like the files are in the computer? In the computer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's totally that moment. Right. And um, I'd never heard that term. And she, of course, uh, explained to me what email was. And in effect, it was like, you can send a letter, but it's through the computer. You know, so um, so we were really the first generation that, you know, experienced the internet. And by the time Losers rolled, you know, I started to think about Losers. I just left Alloy. Um, I had completed my – I had been there almost two years. So I had completed my contract, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And um, I just thought the moment was right, right? We had – everyone was sort of entering their – at this point, their 30s, um, early 30s, and uh, give or take, right? Some of the artists were a little younger. Some were a little older. Uh, and then you had that older generation, certainly. But I just felt like the convergence of youth subcultures that had always existed, right? Like skateboarders had always been into, interested in punk. But um, so if you drew a Venn diagram, there was always crossover there. But it was accelerating and melding and mixing and getting mashed up in a way because of the internet that it hadn't at a rate or a pace that it had not before, right? And um, And I just called it street culture. I just loosely called it, thought of it as sort of this sort of youth street culture kind of thing, you know, that was just out there in the streets. You know, if you went outside and you were interested in any of these things, you probably um, came across some of these creators or, you know, it was just a melting pot in effect. Um, And through the nineties and through my, my years in, in doing the publication, uh, I got to know a lot of creators, whether they be athletes 
right, to visual artists, to musicians, just create, I call them, you know, just creators. And um, it just, it was this loose movement that had kind of crystallized in the 90s around um, this generation of creators that I had came, you know, come to get to know a little bit. And I thought about some of them had started to have museum, like at that time, a couple of them had maybe been, had included in museum exhibitions. Um, They were getting some sort of art world establishment, what I call, you know, like the old school codified art world. Um, They were getting recognized by curators and in museums and those kinds of things, getting, starting to be collected in a serious way by art collectors, but also had these audiences from the cultures they came from, whether it be music or graffiti or skateboarding. And, and they had, so they had these, these sort of followings pre-social media. And I thought, well, no one's kind of encapsulated it in an academic way and treated it seriously. Um, the culture or all these creators. And I had been, like I said, I'd been doing stuff with them in the magazine. We'd get the, some of the artists to do limited edition covers. And one of the other things we would do is make, you know, get them to do limited edition t-shirts or skateboards. And we would actually give those away to some of the shops, almost like a lottery. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe we'd get Shepard Ferry to design the cover and we'd do a T-shirt or a skateboard and we'd only make a hundred of them. And we'd, we'd throw them in those orders that we'd ship out to the, the shops randomly. And so it was like, yes. it was like the Willy Wonka golden yeah, ticket. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a great thing. Yeah. So, um, so those are the kind of some of the moves we did. And, and I thought, well, let's, let's make this into like a serious exhibition you know, complete with a book and treat it academically and be serious about it, you know? Um, Yeah, but you didn't have any idea of the, what the demand might be, right? You saw that there was the old establishment, typical paths of how an artist does a gallery show, whatever. Mm -hmm. And maybe that that artist's audience didn't necessarily fit that mold clearly, right? No. So you see that. Do you think like, okay, is there a business here or do you feel like that this was a passion project that you needed to expose because you had those relationships or were you thinking both like, God, if I can plug, you know, some of these guys that are super talented that no one knows about or that their, their cultures will appreciate and, 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 you know, curate this thing. I've got a juggernaut of a business. How did you view that or what, what came first? Uh, it was definitely passion first. Um, and then I tried to reverse engineer how, how do I make it how worth my while, money? right? Yeah. yeah. How yeah. do I live? How do I do this? Yeah. Because to pull it off a project of that size and scale was going to chew up at least two years of my life. And it did. And then some, um, and I couldn't essentially work for free. You know, I had to, you know, survive and, um, wanted to continue, uh, you know, my, my career, you know, just learning, you know, I, I just always, I don't want to stay stagnant. And so ever get stagnant really. Um, so it was really, Hey, I want to do this now. How do, it, it kind of was just like the magazine, every business I've ever done, actually, it was sort of like, this is what I want to do. Now, how do I make it make sense economically? How do I make it, how can I make a living out of this essentially? Um, so, uh, I formed a company and, and that way we could produce, we could own the intellectual property. Was that iconoclast? Yeah. Iconoclast. Yeah. Iconoclast. And so we, you know, we, we, beautiful losers was copyrighted, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a brand. I basically turned it into a, I used the playbook that you used and mm-hmm. anyone who comes from the brand side or in the industries that we've been talking about, I kind of applied the same rules. And, um, 
we had a lot of brand relationships, right, Sp- that became sponsors. Nike was a sponsor, uh, Agnes B, the clothing designer, T-Mobile, um, I think Toyota even. So, Did it come artist first or brand first? And, and did you do that same theory back in when you were doing Strength, which was like, hey, I've got Shepard Ferry and Barry McGee on board, therefore I could get Evan Hecox and Ryan McGinnis and so on and so on? Or did you go like, hey – uh, you know, T-Mobile, I've got Agnes Pete. Like, how did, how does that roll? Yeah, the artists were all on board. I they mean, board. Every, everybody was psyched to, to do it. It was just, it was sort of, it was, you know, it was a good idea at, at, a, at the absolute perfect time. Like, the timing was really, was really a big part of it, right? Again, no one had done this. It was, it was so appropriate. It was just, it, and looking back on it, it's sort of like, it's sort of like anything, right? The good inventions kind of in retrospect look obvious. You're like, oh my god, of course. Why? That was no brainer, right? And it, and it was. I mean, it was a no brainer. I was like, this is this needs to happen. This project has to happen. These artists are, you know, have are becoming too big. They've got too big of audiences. Too much overlap. There's too much commonality and through lines. This has to happen. And and it's a and it's a moment where I actually, a lot of these creators were working with within these cultures in the nineties. But by the time losers actually happened, you know, we, we had all started to kind of branch out to do different things. And I could see that everyone was entering a different phase in their life, going into being in their thirties and just whatever it was, you know, you just kind of grow apart, not apart, but just you start, you keep progressing. And it was just a moment. And so for me, beautiful losers is really a time capsule. It was really about, I wanted to encapsulate a time uh, and culture and the creators that came from those cultures, I wanted to put it in a box, essentially like a like a Warhol-like time capsule. And so the exhibition and the book were, were meant to be, in effect, these time capsules. That's it. And like an academic, almost anthropological study of cultures that I was involved in, period. That was really it. And you did that. I mean, there's no yeah. question that, that was... Yeah, with we, an exclamation point. We did that. And then from, on the business side, we the way I approached it was um, just very DIY, just like I always had and, and anyone I knew always had. Um, we knew we had the content. We knew we had the brands. We had the brand relationships. And these museums, um, uh, like I said, some of them knew the, – some of these artists had started to get what I'd call art main, mainstream art world attention – um, both in academia and on the in the collector side and the commercial side, they were selling art for significant sums. Some of them, and um, and I, so we we had a and we knew the audience members they had. So, you know, you take a guy like um, you know you mentioned Ed Templeton. I mean, he had you know millions and millions and millions of skateboarders around the world knew his name. So if he's suddenly in in an uh, exhibition in a museum, you know, along with a bunch of other people like him. We felt like there would be some critical word, ma- mass word of mouth going, and we could build up a lot of energy around that. And it was, it was a lot of showmanship. I mean, we did skateboard demonstrations, had music performances. I mean, we turned it into essentially a festival. I mean, it was really essentially like a Lollapalooza, you know? I mean, right. in a weird yeah, way. Sure. I mean, it really was sort of like a Lollapalooza kind of a thing. So I just applied what I knew about in the music worlds, you know, concerts and skateboarding and um, you know, skateboard demos and everything I learned in those worlds, I just applied here in this new setting, in this art world museum setting. And it was, it was like lightning in a bottle. It was an absolute home run. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And from a fan point of view, I mean, I, you know, just, it, it, it was so, it, the thing that goes beyond, you know, 
what you just said is the impact you had on the current generation that was being showcased, but future generations. And I, you know, I thank you for that. Like that was so was inspiring fun. for real. Like, yeah, you know, thank you. um, and I know it had a huge impact on, you know, uh, various cultures, uh, from that movement. And I, I don't know, I'm not super into the art scene, but I don't know that anything has been done anywhere near that level of execution, that broad sweeping, that global, uh, since then. It toured, give you some perspective, and I want to touch on the brand thing because I don't feel like I hammered that home a little bit. Um, can I touch on the brand thing yeah, real quick? It. One of the things that I knew was critically important was we wanted to have creative control of the project. Yes, we own the intellectual property. See, the mo the way most museums work is they, let's say, they might go to people like you and I and say, hey, we'd love you, Ryan, Christian, we'd love you guys to guest curate an exhibition for us about surfing or I don't know, whatever, right? Art, skateboarding, whatever. We'd like to... And, but the, the museum itself owns the IP and, you know, it's their show, they public, but I wanted to own, I didn't want anyone telling us, I didn't want anyone interfering creatively for, I wanted it to be a, a, us, me and the artist d dictating what the show was. Um, and I knew that I had to retain also the economic power over these museums. So not only did we program the whole show and, and the events around the openings and those sorts of things. We actually came in with the sponsors, and so I came to everywhere that the museum or the the show toured. Every museum that the show toured, we I literally cut a sponsorship check to every one of those venues um, on behalf of the sponsors that we had brokered, and I named some of them. And so, um, and they were completely the sponsors were completely supportive of us, meaning me and the artists, and they wanted obviously our vision to so. You know, we and we had pushback from some museums. Some museums lump their budgets together. So what they do is they sell sponsorship against their year calendar, like the year-long calendar of exhibitions, and then they pool all that sponsorship money into like one big marketing budget, and then they kind of prorate it out, right? And I said, no, I'm bringing you, you know, I'm cutting you a six-figure, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars of sponsorship money, and I would negotiate how much, like what the budget was for the show, what the marketing budget was going to be for the show. Uh, the production budget, those kinds of things. And they would push back on that. Yeah. And I said, well, then I can also cut you. I would just tell them, well, I don't. I can walk. Yeah, I don't need to cut you this check. Yeah. Like you can go find your own sponsors for the show. But I mean, if you want ready-made, you, you want to do no work and receive a $250,000 check, <laughs> right. here's here are uh, the things that have to happen. And have a ton of credibility because I'm choosing your venue. Yeah, right, exactly. And so, so it was really interesting. We basically, you know, we... DIY'd it. We took over those. We we took over those institutions for that period of time because we had to if we wanted it to be. And I told them, I said, look, if you, I wasn't trying to get over on anybody. It was more about I wanted it to be real and authentic, and that's why it was so. And it was, and that's why it was so popular. If it was cheesed out in any way, it it wouldn't have been as successful as it was. Right. The artists would have felt it. The guys just the people the visiting were, yeah. would have felt the they would have seen all the corporate advertisers around like, it yeah, just, just would lame. have been that whole thing that happens that corporate worlds still don't really understand exactly and, and it, it you see it today in social media and marketing and social media and stuff it's like you kid you know they sniff smart. it they smell a they rat a mile it away so quick yeah yeah so if, if i i always preach when anything having to do with marketing with any of our clients getting you know just so I, I'm, I'm, authenticity is the biggest thing you know, it's just, it's got to be real. 
And it, it's got to be sort of, you can't fake it because you, you can smell fake. Kids yeah. can smell fake. Yeah. And especially when we're talking about an art and a musical and a film movement. Like yeah. you're talking about the, the, the root of creativity. Yeah. It really had to be. Yeah. Genuine. It, it right? has to. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so we, um, that was just critically important to us. And we had, we had to have some fights, you know, we definitely had fights with institutions and pushback, but ultimately we got what we wanted. And, uh, and, and I think, I think the other thing too, I will, I will credit, um, the curators at the Contemporary Art Center in Cincinnati, which was the first venue, because they're the ones that green green lit it. Uh, a guy named Tom Collins, and then a, a, another uh, another guy named Matt Distel. Great guys, very smart, talented curators, and they saw, especially Tom. He was the senior curator there. He's the one who originally green lit it. He he's a savvy guy, and he knew these. He said, "Holy shit, these people have a huge audience, mm-hmm. right? This underground sort of come out of the woodwork type audience, and I'm just going to let these kids." do their thing and he did and it was a it was a home run and and so we would go to these other museums like if we got pushback from these other museums about you know the budget or creative decisions or something we would just point to the previous venue and say look we broke the it it broke attendance records at every venue it went to including um orange county museum our uh which is where i experienced it yeah yeah and it was uh, you know we had we had um curatorial fights with them over larry clark photos that were you know or were sexually objectionable to them or something, you know, and, and, and we, we found a compromise. We put it, that stuff in a separate room or whatever. But, but the point is, is like, I, you know, when I would get pushback on any front from one of these museums, we would just point to the previous venues. I was like, look, it was really successful. It was critically acclaimed, got a huge response. Everyone loved it. It, everyone was happy and, um, and it worked out well. And, you know, and, and then the result is you sort of catalyzed this movement and you also did a service, I think, beautifully and and purely on behalf of the artists. Some of these guys are so independent that without you, they and I'm not speaking for them, just my opinion is that in some cases, your venue and your platform legitimized them and put them into a stratosphere where they could then be attractive as a creative director or as uh, doing their own thing and essentially gave birth to these artists career paths that maybe again, they were just super good and super talented, but maybe they wouldn't have been discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank God, cause we've got a ton of work out there. You got guys like Shepard Ferry that are hugely successful, both on the brand side and the art side. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, many others that are in the world of film and photography mm-hmm. that are really continuing to influence, uh, what we're seeing in youth culture today mm-hmm. via, you know, their influence has now influenced a whole other generation of yeah. photographers and brands. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, and that's where we are on that. Mm-hmm. So what, just curious, you know, what were some of your personal favorite <laughs> artists? I don't know if I'll get you in trouble or not oh, by playing fairs, but. Oh, God. Uh, I'd probably take the fifth on that yeah. one. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I will say that maybe my favorite piece in the show was this um, essentially this big photo collage by Craig Stezik, who I think out of all the artists in Beautiful Losers um, might be the most important artist to the cultures that were being explored. He is probably, if I were going to sort of pick one artist to kind of embody Beautiful Losers, I cannot think of anyone better than him, frankly. I mean, he has... (laughs) 
man, if I were still in the art game, I I would he, that guy, his archive is just insane. Um, that guy has documented so many cool things, particularly about Southern California culture from hot rod culture to surf culture, certainly in skateboarding. I mean, the guy basically invented the, he really is probably arguably maybe the most important creator that kind of cultivated or sculpted the image of the modern rebellious skateboarder. And it was started in his chronicles in Skateboarder Magazine of the Dogtown scene that he basically helped start and certainly helped shape or, you know, was critical, maybe the most critical guy in shaping. I mean, he is just an incredibly influential figure and very underrecognized uh, at large, I should say, and certainly by the mainstream. And Glenn Friedman as well on the music side? Yeah, get Glenn, Glenn. Get Glenn's shot an amazing amount of, of stuff too, but Glenn was, uh, I mean, Stesic was really like a mentor to him. I mean, Glenn's really? Mar- Glenn's wow. much younger. I mean, not much. He's significantly younger than Craig, and Craig was really like his mentor. Wow. Yeah. He Craig Stezik is. I I could probably just have an yeah. hour long podcast about <laughs> Craig Stezik. Yeah. I mean, he really is. Um, that guy needs a museum survey. You know, he really needs a museum survey. He's just he is just not participated in the art world. I mean, he voluntarily he could be recognize and you know as sounds like he needs a guy like you to put it together so he does. uh when he needs you come re- up for air one of these days he needs uh, a really powerful gallery to yeah. sort of get behind him but he he just doesn't it's him too he just doesn't participate in, you know in it he doesn't have any interest in it or maybe he does but he doesn't act on it i don't know but yeah. you know he just doesn't um he doesn't politic yeah just art for art's sake and doesn't not trying to He's not trying to capitalize on those things you just said. Yeah, you know, like he needs a movements like, and he needs a powerhouse gallery to sort of get behind him and put um, do just he needs a machine behind him. Yeah, basically. Yeah. But his work, his body of work, is incredible. Very cool. It's yeah. making me want to go dust that stuff off and, and go look it up. Um, incredible stuff. You know, my one of my favorites was Kilgallen, mm-hmm. and I never was for you know I, I actually that's when I was, you know, doing the Paul Frank thing and, um, started really getting into art. And so I uh, was fortunate enough to, to, you know, get introduced to some artists that I had never seen through Beautiful Losers and went on to purchase some of their, their artwork. And I never was able to get my hands on a kill gallon. Um, there wasn't much out there. There was, and sadly she obviously passed. And mm-hmm. so, um, but what beautiful style, Mm-hmm. Um, effortless and just super cool, and I—that's the one thing that I wish I <laughs> could look at every day on my wall. Sure, yeah, the the imagery is pleasant. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you would sort of, you know, get sick of looking at maybe over a long period yeah, of time. No way. You know, um, yeah, she was very talented. It's a shame. Um, she passed a few years prior to the show opening, so um, so unfortunately there was. Uh, you know, she would have been great to do sort of site-specific mural work. She did a lot of great stuff like that when she was alive. So, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I don't know. Do you want to do you want to go from there into what Country Club was all about, or because because that sort of was directly connected, yeah, right, and and sort of led to your yeah. So let's talk about Country Club. Sure. So, so uh, as beautiful, so beautiful losers. It yes, you you kind of talked about the scale of it, and um, it, it toured museums around the world for five years. It went to nine nine or ten different venues, 
um, and performed very well attendance-wise everywhere it went, as I mentioned earlier, um, it, it really became like took on a life of its own, almost like a Frankenstein thing. It was just, just kept going and going and going. And to give some perspective, um, that's sort of unheard of in the art world. Even mega exhibits like – like Mirakami. Um, yeah, the Mirakami one yeah. um, or the Warhol, you know, one of the more popular Warhol retrospectives. I mean, they'll have – it'll tour. You know, it's not uncommon for um, desirable shows to tour to museums, uh, but not to that many venues over that length of time. It really was a beast. Um, and so as that went on over the years, um, Iconoclast was really became an e-commerce business. I started Iconoclast essentially as an, a business entity to produce losers. Um, By the way, sorry, I d- yeah. and I didn't mean to go segue so fast because I we could have dwelled on Beautiful Losers no. for a long time. If if someone's listening and they're like, I have no idea what Beautiful Losers is. I've never mm. heard of these artists you're talking about. First of all, I highly recommend you go and do a deep dive on Beautiful Losers, you guys, because I think a lot of the art you see today has direct roots from that movement. Um, is there was a documentary or no? Yeah. So where would someone be able to look up the documentary? Sure. Uh, it it was on Netflix. Um, I don't know if it still is. Right, I've never seen it. Yeah. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, really? No, I, I stood at the show, dude. Uh, I figured, I, I'm good. I, I, I had seen it. I get it. Um, uh, it's funny because a lot of people out there only know Beautiful Losers from the movie, and then there's some people like you that know it, only know the exhibition. And touch the book. and feel. Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah that's I, that's great. Yeah. I, um, the the film um, was a little more lighthearted than the exhibition in the book. I I was less involved in the film. Truth be told. Um, uh, I essentially granted the producers. Um, uh, I, I I gave them the right to to use the IP and the name. I actually didn't. To be totally honest with you, I didn't. Um, I wasn't particularly enamored with them using the name. I just I initially wanted them to kind of just do their own thing and call it something else. But they wanted to use the name for obvious reasons. Why? Because it, you felt like if you were going to – is that like Spaceballs the movie, Spaceballs the teacher? Like wh- yeah, why? Well, there was some of that – well, I saw some um, early edits of the film and um, it was like a it was like a lighthearted feel-good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 that was, and that's fine. That's great. But it, it was – it had a different sort of spirit. And and tone than the exhibition in the book. The exhibition in the book were really fairly serious academic. Yeah. You know, the book itself is there's six serious essays in that book. Um, I mean, it is it's taught in college curriculums. It's it continues to sell. We continue to print it. It is, and it's because it's a historical document. It's what I envisioned originally. I wanted to sort of encapsulate that moment in time, and I wanted to do it in a serious way. And that's why it. It continues to have resonance, um, in my opinion. I think that the film um, is just felt a lot different. It was again more of a lighthearted kind of feel-good story, and it really wasn't about all the. It was only about some of the artists. It really wasn't about all the artists, and it's and it really wasn't about the cultures that. Mm, so I was yeah. Beautiful Losers, the exhibition in the book was more of an anthropological study. This was more of again like a, kind of like a feel-good uh, look at you know, a, a small handful of artists that happen to be part of the project. And so um, I kind of reluctantly, to, truth be told, allowed allowed them to use the name um, just to try to do, be friendly in effect, you know, be nice, be cool about it. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't involved creatively in the, you know, I was credited as a producer, but I wasn't involved creatively in making the film at all. Um, and, uh, 
I mean, you know, it's 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 worth seeing if you if you're interested in those uh, yeah. artists. It's it's a it's oh, yeah. interesting. I got to go back and check it out. Yeah, you should. The other thing that strikes me too before we move on is, you know, a lot of times if something cool and culturally relevant does come out, and it kind of speaks to what we were just talking about with the the film aspect is. You didn't, you put, to me, you put more emphasis on the art and the movement than the commerce that was derived from it. So in other words, I don't recall seeing Beautiful Losers t-shirts and, and or uh, a ton of merchandise generated from the artist's artwork. Um, We we made stuff, but it was, it wasn't branded beautiful. Like we didn't do the whole. You didn't do that. No, we didn't. And that was intentional or just. Yeah, because it was, I thought it was corny. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I didn't want to cheese it out too much. I mean, you know, we have the book, um, which the first issue, the first edition of the book came out by the second venue. So, the, you know, so we had that. But I, I think maybe we made some, well, well, I know we gave, we did some giveaway posters. That was pretty cool, you know, but we didn't cheese it out like that. What we did do was give artists another medium. Like we would commission artists to do, to um, make t-shirts and prints and things like that of their own design, singular designs. And so we did sell that. Um, and that, that's really what Iconoclast became. And so we would get all those artists to um, make stuff. And then we would do a normal 50-50 split, which is a kind of a typical art world gallery kind of artist split on the sales, which is actually a better deal than most edition houses. Most edition houses... From the artist perspective, right? Because yeah, you could have said... Hey, I've got the machine. I'm just going to pay you a royalty. Right. And so w- rather than, and that, yeah, a lot of like a, a t-shirt companies and a lot of pr- um, art world publishers that publish like, you know, limited edition prints with, with well-known artists and stuff, they set their deals up a little differently. We took a traditional gallery split, which was 50-50, which is a much better deal for the artists than they would get typically to make that kind of stuff. And that was just sort of, Again, I wanted to have an artist first kind of take um, and have them have a real vested interest in in, in everything. And so uh, Iconoclast became an e-commerce business. Over the years, we continued to make, uh, we expanded the artists we work with. We worked with a whole range of artists that went way beyond Beautiful Losers. And then Country Club kind of came from that. Um, I looked at, we, we, we kind of became the CCS. Uh, we were sort of the 800-pound gorilla of um, limited edition art products, basically, which was granted a small space. So when I say 800 pound gorilla, it was the 800 pound gorilla of small space, but it was a good one. And we had, I think we, we might've had the biggest email list in the art world too. Um, so we had, we just had a big reach to in the art space. And I figured why not leverage those things? You know, all these artists that I've worked with, um, some of them are starting to sell work that's, you know, well into the five figures. And they have, um, you know, galleries of varying quality representing them. Um, I think I can do as, a, as good a job or better. And um, so why not? I'm selling, you know, a, a $200 print. Why not sell a, you know, $15,000 painting and, um, and be more of a complete service to those artists and to our customers? And so that was the genesis for, for Country Club. Um, but with Country Club, I wanted to um, – the art gallery business is archaic in many ways. It's very much a lifestyle business. It's a mom-and-pop, old-school kind of industry, um, completely unregulated. It's like the Wild West. Um, 
art stars are manufactured in the same way that musicians and actors are manufactured. It's, it's honestly, there's a ton of BS. It's, I became pretty, by the end, I became pretty disillusioned with the business. I loved working with the artists. Um, there's a lot of great people, but, um, when I got into it, I looked at it, um, most gallerists start that business as a lifestyle business. They just want something, you know, they put their name on the gallery, you know, the John Smith gallery and they, you know, do their thing. Um, I had no interest in that. Um, I wanted, so I, I took a play, I went back to my playbook, which was branding. You know, I was like, okay, how can I, you know, how can I game this thing and disrupt, try to disrupt the gallery, the gallery model. Um, so I called it country club. Um, and which is the branding opportunities there are just are so, you know, I had this envision of like, kind of like Brooks brothers, right. punk, right. You know, and, and our logo was, uh, we, we, uh, <laughs> clash I'm, of civilizations. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Our original logo was the, um, was the Cincinnati red C uh-huh. and we used the stitching on the hat. So you could actually see the stitching on like, you know, those, those hats and, um, uh, we interlocked them like Chanel. Right. And um and that was our logo and the color it was we colored it like kind of a kind of a British racing green. You know, we tried to think about what is the most country club-ish kind of color palette. So it was like British racing green and and gray was essentially our our color scheme. And we just played off of that. Um and we adopted a really experimental model rather than, you know, it was a brand rather than somebody's name. Um we did I called them external projects, but we did projects out in the streets. Um, and it was everything from events to performances to murals. Um, our space in LA was a, was not a commercial space. It was a, a, a Schindler house, an architectural landmark home that was built in the thirties that still looks like a spaceship. So, um, it was a Rudolph, Sch- he was a protege of, uh, frankly, Wright And, uh, built a lot of, arguably, him and Neutra were probably the two most important modernist architects, um, uh, arguably in America, but certainly in L.A. And I thought, I want to create country club. I want to create essentially like a clubhouse salon style hangout space that happens to have art, art in it. And so we would have art exhibitions and performances and um, bands would come and record there. Uh, so we did all kinds of things. Um, and it became people would just drop in and hang out. and. It became this weird hybrid that no one quite understood, yet everyone was drawn to. And so kind of feel like a Soho house thing now, kind of. Kind of. But like 10 years prior. Yeah. <laughs> or and, more. And on a smaller scale, certainly, but also like, and, uh, you know, specific to art. Yeah. And the great right. irony is I ended up donating artwork to the Soho house in Miami when they opened um, as part of their lobby. So I'm, I was a founding member there just because I donated a bunch right. of artwork to them. So, you know, th- as I as I've been tracing, you know, some of your roots, it's just it's interesting to me. I don't think any of this was an accident. You know how you continue to play in forward thinking spaces, and you see things happening. Sometimes you grab them and collect them and put them together and 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 package them and then market them out. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's almost like you're grabbing someone's subconscious and saying like, "I know you need this, and now I'm going to show you how you need it." Um, and I think that's, it's, it's a wonderful gift. And so I want to now talk a little bit about distill, because again, I think you're on the, the frontier, some pretty interesting things as it relates. And it's interesting too, you're, and again, no accident from your career path has led you up to this 
next thing. So um, if you would maybe give us a little bit of a background on what Distill is and what the vision is for it. Sure. So um, as things started going more and more mobile, you know, I'm talking five, six years ago, um, it was kind of, I, I mentioned it earlier, it was sort of like I saw the second internet revolution and that's the mobile revolution. And we're, we're knee deep in it, as, every, as you know, or maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know where on the spectrum that we are uh, on the timeline, but we're certainly um, in the mobile revolution. And, and I knew I needed to have, um, you know, compelling uh, mobile presence for my business, namely Iconoclast. And uh, um, our our audience was largely under forty, but not not exclusively. Um, and uh, I thought, well, well, hell, we you know we we need to have something that's pretty impactful in the mobile space, and 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 we don't. And so I, I built a mobile product for Iconoclast. It was essentially meant to be a sales channel, and um, uh, it worked really well. And um, this product was a mix of several things, but essentially it was it would automatically aggregate content from the artists, um, from their social media, from us, and we would um, sell things against it in effect, right? So, you know, if it was a Evan Hecox's, you know, Instagram or something, you could buy his print from there. Um, and it, it, it performed really well, and then I, I quickly realized that this might have applicability beyond my business, and I figured well, if I have this need and everything else is going mobile, you know, maybe, maybe all the, all the brands out there need that too. And when I say brands, I'm not talking just about, you know, the Nikes or the, um, you know, the element skateboards, you know, big and small brands. I'm not talking about like brand brands in the traditional sense. I'm talking about athletes. I'm talking about musicians, creators, individuals, because they're brands as well. Right. I mean, it's hard to argue that Nicki Minaj, who you know, has 95 million followers, is not a brand. Absolutely. Right? right. And um, and we're seeing that. Like, you know, these people are uh, are turning themselves into an industry, and they are. And so um, I I made a, a couple I, – I, I took our product, and I made some branded video demos. I, I essentially would make, a like, a, a Nike skateboarding version, or I made – I think I made an Arcade Fire one, just random brands and bands. And I made these videos, and I went out. This was about two years ago. I went out to um, a bunch of folks that, you know, well, you know some of them too, but folks in these various spaces and these verticals that I've worked in over the years. And I, f I showed them the product, and I figured, hey, is this, is worth, is this worth a damn to you? And, um, and they said, yeah, sure. And by Christmas, we had a waiting list of over 100 uh, brands and creators. Um, and I hadn't done anything i hadn't you know raised a dollar i hadn't <laughs> written a line of code i hadn't i hadn't sort of done anything um uh but we did <laughs> and and so now we're getting close to uh next year we'll we'll start to commercialize um, distill so what distill is essentially is we're a mobile commerce solution so we provide everything from uh mobile apps to mobile sales channels uh, other mobile sales channels for brands uh, to sell their uh, sell their products in effect and then we have a kind of a suite of services around those products. We have data and analytics services. We also what we call, have what we call we just call marketing services, but that includes everything from producing the kinds of capsules and uh, co collections and limited. going back to Wu Tang to Go, your, to your pro stuff. skater. Like all it's an stuff. interplay within that community totally. of brands that are associated and a part of Distill. And and. You know, we've talked about this, but clearly it's something I, I like and I'm, I'm okay at is, is sort of 
thinking about and fostering and producing those those things, mm-hmm. right? Those those collaborations, those products, those ideas, and so um, that falls under what we call our marketing services. So it, it involves a little bit of matchmaking. It involves, but we also offer um, uh, influencer marketing programs. So say you know I keep using Element. I don't know why, but let's say you're Element skateboards and and you want to you know do an influencer campaign, um, you know we we can execute that's part of our that's something we can execute for our clients and the cost to that brand in that case is there's a the, those those sort of tack on or add on services like an influencer campaign or um or some of those things those actually cost money but the the bulk of our uh our products and services don't cost anything we just take a percent of of um of the transactions that occur in our ecosystem so uh, say you know your um uh, your Levi's or your uh, a smaller brand, it doesn't matter. Um, your Element and we're powering your mobile app. Um, you, you know, this is technology that would cost you millions of dollars to produce and more importantly maintain on your own. We take all that away and do it for you. Um, and uh, we just take 10% of, of the transaction. So there's no cash outlay. There's no risk. There's no financial risk. And then essentially you become... You're another. You're a retailer essentially for them, mm-hmm. right? And you're, and not only that, but it's they're playing within the space where brands are curated by distill. So there's a lot of cachet that's associated. Yeah. With it's like when you're a brand, and you have and you have a certain image that you're trying to put out there. You want to know that in that store you sit with. This brand and this brand yeah. and this brand and not that one. Yeah. Um, and so, in a sense, though, it, it also helps brands with relevance. And forget, like, yeah. that you could do marketing things for them or it's a turnkey situation. Yeah. So, I think I – think, What's the downside, right, if you're a yeah. brand? Like, well, what, well, one thing I will say is, like, you know, we, yes, in some sense we're uh, – you, you know, maybe some brands think of us as a retailer for them. We're more of a marketplace for them. That's the way I like to talk about it. I think that um, we're more of a marketplace, and and we're going to offer them incremental sales on top of what they're already seeing. So, so let me let me put it into perspective. Ninety percent of smartphone use are in native apps, right? Nobody uses the mobile web, or they use it for very targeted use, right? Um, and as it relates to commerce, mobile the mobile web is a crappy experience. You got to log in, you got to fill out all your your address and your credit cards, yeah. you know. Whereas native apps are um, are there's a lot of advantages, right? They they uh, they're tailor made for mobile devices, a so they're just a better experience. There's things like persistent login, right? You don't need to log back in. So when you when you buy something in a mobile environment that we've powered, um, there's no typing all your stuff in again every time you you order you order something. Your profile carries over um, into any of the any of the products we power. Um, and so there's a lot of advantages that the both for the consumers of the audience members of these brands as well as the brands themselves to participate in our platform as opposed to trying to go it alone. Um, so we have this sort of discoverable marketplace where these brands can expose their products and content not just to their audience but to in our entire ecosystem. Whereas if they go out and sort of build an app on their own, not only are they going to you know spend a lot of money building and more importantly maintaining that tech. Um, their they their app sits out there on an island, right? It's sort of isolated by definition. Like apps are siloed experiences, and that's not the case with the mobile products we power. Um, so 
meaning someone could conceivably discover and buy an element skateboard and not necessarily be a user in the element skateboard app. And so that's what I talk about. What we really created is a marketplace. And what we offer is a toolkit, uh, a complete mobile toolkit for our, our clients. And that they get for, you know, there's no cash. All of that they get for nothing. Um, and I think, I think on the aspect of the percentage, it maybe we are a cheap retailer, right? I don't know what, you know, a, a, like a typical, you sell to a typical wholesaler, they're going to take or retailer, you're, you're a clothing manufacturer, you're a brand, you sell to um, some retailer out there, you're giving up what? I don't know, oh, 40, 60? Oh, it depends. Yeah. Some are a little bit more aggressive than that. Is that but, right? Oh, sure. What would be the range? Give me the, what's the average bracket? I mean, well, I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but yeah. some, some like 70s. Okay. Uh, it depends. It depends. So, big big dogs versus little dogs. Right. Some carry a bigger stick than others. Sure. So uh, so yeah. so ten percent's cheap. Absolutely. Right. So you know so yeah. we're, so it's it's kind of a no brainer um, for these brands and and what's you know prior you know before a service like us came along it's kind of like you know mobile was something they just couldn't wrap their head around because it was just too cost and labor intensive you know for them to actually compete in the mobile space. But they have to. Again, I'll go back to the big, the big numbers, the big metrics. Ninety percent of smartphone use are native apps, right? Mobile commerce is going to overtake all um, traditional e-commerce within the next thirty months. So the the majority of all internet-based commerce worldwide and in the U.S. will be on will be mobile within the next three years. And so when you when you think about that, and then so the next question, the obvious next question is. If you don't have a compelling mobile product in your brand, where does that leave you? You are effed. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> so we we are we honestly are a silver bullet for, for to take all that pain away for those brands that are in that space that yeah. don't have the time, they don't have the yeah. financial resource, or the bandwidth to even wrap their head around yeah. where it's going. You come to them and go, yeah. <laughs> "I got you covered." Yeah. And it's, here's why. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So. You versus an Amazon, two different things, obviously, but what, I mean, similarities, differences, what, you know, where, where are we with them? That's great. Um, so, well, I'll, I will say this, that like what I tell our clients is when they ask, well, should we have a mobile website, a mobile optimized website in addition? And I say, you got to do everything, you know, like you got need to take an all of the above approach as it relates to your sales and marketing. You really do. Um, so that's, that's a sort of a, a caveat or, you know, that is just sort of a, a prerequisite or something I tell them right off the bat. That's generally speaking, that should be your approach. But as it relates to sort of, and so here's the thing in mobile, Walmart and Amazon own the majority of mobile space, right? I mean, I mean, of sales. I mean, that's just, that's just sort of where everything is, but they're selling, you know, coffee and, you know, toilet paper and, you know, very commodified products. So if you're a brand like Huff, you know, a premium kind of streetwear brand, you do not want to, I mean, that's just not what you want to be. That is not where you want to be. And if you're an Hermes or a Prada or any, you know, even an Adidas, like they, even Nike resisted selling on Amazon for so long because that is not how they wanted their brand positioned. And it, it's just, you know, and the margins are crazy. They're going to talk about you talk about leverage and big boys and stuff. They're, those, the Amazons of the world are the ones that are taking, you know, 70%. So again, we're an antidote to that. You know, it's sort of like, we're the alternative. 
Um, and, and you get to do it in a way where through you get to participate in our marketplace in a way that um, you get to position your brand how you want it. You get to tell your brand story how you want to tell it as opposed to, you know, um, being locked into uh, the way that Amazon looks now. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 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 So. There's a sexy skin and an experience that you're purveying and or that the brands can drag and drop their own. Yeah. I mean, it's right. I mean, that's we, our goal is to put the power is to in a way be an antidote to the Walmarts and to put the power back in the hands of the brands and their audience. Right. And so we are really, our toolkit empowers not only our brand clients, but their audience members as well. Um, and, uh, and that's our goal. So, and, and this is currently not something that's live available or isn't, you tell me, and then how, if I'm listening and I'm interested and I want to hear more about this or go check it out, like, what would I, what would I search to find it at this point? Sure. We are going to start, uh, you'll start seeing our, our, our clients' products dribbling out after the new year. Uh, we're doing some small scale pilots right now. Um, you know, we've spent the last two years essentially building the, the fundamental technology um, because the, it's obviously a, a, a tech product at the end of the day. And, um, uh, it's taken a lot of effort and, uh, and time to sort of build the, the fundamental technology, but um, we're ready to start to commercialize and scale it. And you'll start seeing that after the new year. So January, 2018, mm -hmm. February, somewhere in that zone. Yeah. I'm obviously super excited to see this and I know how you execute things. Um, so this is on a scale. The bar like, is high. Oh my God. It's so this, high. <laughs> this is on a scale of, of it makes anything I've ever done in the past. If we pull this off, which uh, uh, we will, but um, <laughs> but uh, if we are uh, able to pull this off, it's it's on a yeah, it's definitely a scale unlike anything I, I've ever done. So the challenge is pretty. Personally, I'm you know I'm really excited and certainly uh, not a not a situation where I'm going to get bored anytime soon. <laughs> no, no doubt. No, I know you're. You're the busiest guy I know. Uh, so if, if do you have any, you know, how would people find you? What's your, where do you want them to find you at this point and where can they find Distill or, or Beautiful Losers or any of the other sure. things that you've, you know, touched on today? Sure. Um, I would say, you know, the, the Distill site is kind of currently in sort of stealth mode. So when you go to distill.com and that's D-I-S-T-L-L.com, um, you'll just see sort of a splash page uh, with kind of a cryptic login, you know, for, for some, for some of our users, but uh, the new site will, will debut in um, as close to the new year as we can, certainly Q1 of next year, but uh, we'd like to go live sometime in January with the new site. And that will kind of uh, be our coming out party in a, in a way, you know, somebody could go there and certainly wrap their head around what it is we do and what we offer. And as far as going back for beautiful losers, is there a URL? live attached or Ugh, Netflix you know, archives or how would someone experience that? Like I said, the, the film you could, I don't know if it's still available on Netflix, but that's, it's out there. Um, and, um, it's, you know, it's probably on some other services. If, if it's not on Netflix, um, it's certainly on iTunes. Um, the, the best way somebody could track beautiful losers is to follow us on Instagram, which is just beautiful losers official is the handle at beautiful losers official. And, um, uh, we haven't posted anything there in a while, but we will, uh, we will continue to dribble out stuff in there. And that'll include actually 
Uh, one of the things we've done is we use the distill technology uh, to actually power a Beautiful Losers app, and that actually can be had in the App Store. Um, and we drop uh, periodically. I'll dig out stuff from the archive, um, literally like old product that you know that never sold, that got sold or just was held back, or um, some of it will be artifacts. Literally, God, like, and that's the gold too. I oh mean, my God, like gold! It is. We, I, you know, we would. Uh, um, over the last year, we've dribbled out, you know, again, speaking of aesthetic, maybe something like an old rare skateboard or oh, man. just stuff from my personal archive and, and just let it go, you know, just let it go for really cheap um, just to kind of get it out there. And, and um, so we've used the distill platform uh, to continue to have um, give life to, to that project. Super fun. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in and spending some time with me and, um, Always an honor and fun. We didn't talk about any other fun stuff that we talk about off the air, like special forces or crazy, yeah. stupid diets that we try. Biohacking, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that at some other point. Yeah, right. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoyed what you heard today. Uh, as for me, you can check out Brevity Code Podcast on Instagram uh, and brevitycode.com, the website, and look forward to more interesting and diversified conversations coming up soon. Thanks for listening.